When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. back in Europe of the early 1930s. Europe still in the grips of the Great Economic Depression, inflation, unemployment, hunger marches, desperation. Europe in which the established democratic governments are floundering unsuccessfully in face of these problems. Europe which sees itself threatened from the east and from within by the new Bolshevik terror. And a Europe in which more and more, in virtually every country, People are seeking economic salvation, defence against communism and the realisation of their nationalistic aspirations in the new fascist shirted movements. This is the Europe of Hitler and the brown shirted Nazis. And already the mass hysteria, mass hypnotism, exercised by Adolf Hitler, whose thousand-year Reich was to begin in 1933. In Italy, Mussolini was already an established and respected member of the international community. For most of the 1920s, Italy was under his rule. The man who had brought order, order to that country, who was now about to embark on an imperial war. But most of all, the man whose black shirts, whose fascists, had given a new name and provided a new model for others in different countries to follow. Comandati da un soldato di razza, quale il vicere, e da un gruppo di generali di alto valore, i nostri soldati nazionali indigeni saranno molto filo da torcere alle masse nemiche. Nearer home, in Britain, we had the emergence of Sir Oswald Mosley and his black shirts. We want to get things done in Britain. That is the real issue raised by our manifesto. You will not agree with us if you are content with things as they are. If you are willing to let this country just drift 
to disaster. But you will at least hear us with sympathy if you are aware of the gravity of the national situation, if you believe that government by talk must at last give place to government by action. We believe that we cannot muddle through this time. But we also believe that with effort and with organization, this country can be greater and more prosperous than ever before. We do not propose dictatorship because the control of an elected parliament is still retained. But we do propose a drastic revision of the parliamentary machine in order that the will of the people may be carried out. And in Ireland, well, we too had our shirted movement, the Blue Shirts, led by General Owen O'Duffy. Oh, tell me, my lads, sir, the old Fenian chief, the goal that your boys have in view. And what brings you forth from all over the land in your colours so stately and blue? The goal that we strive for, my worthy old friend, is the goal for which brave men and strong have given their lives, and that goal will be won when the blue shirts come marching along. The blue shirts shared many of the characteristics of continental fascist movements. They wore the uniform of fascist movements. They were rabid in their anti-communism. The movement was based on ex-soldiers, and it represented those whose economic livelihood was threatened. And yet, its supporters would deny that it ever was or ever sought to be a fascist movement. Today, the word blue shirt is little more than a term of political abuse frequently heard in Dáil Éireann. But who were the blue shirts? What kind of movement was it? Why did it suddenly emerge? Why did it collapse so easily? And again, was it fascist? Let's begin in 1932. We had an election that year. You cannot afford to take a chance with anarchy. With communism. With a breach of the treaty. With national discredit. With a continuance of political unrest. The best way to get economic advancement is to defeat Fianna Fáil. A common and ale election poster, 1932. Fianna Fáil is pledged to repeal all acts passed for the public safety. No claptrap can hide the fact that this means a free hand for the so-called IRA and the communist organisation known as Ser Era. The real danger of communism in Ireland does not come from the Catholic unemployed, but from the alleged intellectuals who have organised Serera and enticed into it misguided country boys. Abolition of the Oath of Allegiance, which Fianna Foyle promises to please the IRA and the Communists, means, without a shadow of doubt, a breach of the treaty. It will be construed as an unfriendly act by Great Britain. It will be followed, according to Mr De Valera, by a period of non-cooperation with Great Britain. This means for certain that a Fianna Fáil government cannot possibly conclude a trade agreement with our best customer. The Fianna Fáil party has a record of anarchy and war in the past, and its policy will lead to anarchy and war in the future. Be fair to yourself. Vote for the government party. The poster also quoted from a speech allegedly made by Sean T. O'Kelly to the voters of North Dublin at Smithfield. The policy of my party is before all a Republican one. I would not condemn the prisoners on Arbor Hill who believe in the doctrine of gun violence. The Cosgrave Party then fought on its record, on law and order, on national development within the British Commonwealth of Nations. Fianna Fáil was more radical. It would abolish the Oath of Allegiance. 
It would withhold payment of the land annuities to Great Britain. It would eliminate the large ranchers and divide their land among the small farmers and the landless labourers. It would suspend the Public Safety Acts, open the jail gates for the political prisoners. And, of course, a Fianna Fáil victory would be one step further on the road to a 32-county republic. This Fianna Fáil programme was, of course, bitterly opposed by Common and Ale, W.T. Cosgrave speaking in Dublin. The rights and liberties secured by the treaty must be preserved. The fullest possible advantage must be taken of our membership of the British Commonwealth of Nations and of our proximity to the British market. The government party is the one party in this country which, sense, which can secure for the people political and economic salvation. With all that, Common and Ale didn't win. On March the 9th, 1932, Eamon de Valera was elected president of the Executive Council of the Free State. Something more than a routine change of government. For now, civil war winners gave way to civil war defeated. And the new government took charge of the very army and the very police force it had opposed under arms just nine years earlier. present government of the Irish Free State has been elected by a large majority for the purpose of putting into execution a programme based on the deep nat national instincts of the Irish people. This programme aims at restoring the unity of this island and creating an independent Ireland living its own cultural, economic and national life. We do not wish to seek quarrels with any country. We wish well to our neighbour, Great Britain, as to all other countries. We want our liberty so that our cooperation with Great Britain may be one of harmony and friendship and to remove every obstacle to the natural growth of good relations between the Irish and British people. The new government moved with speed and resolution. A bill to abolish the Oath of Allegiance was published. The land annuities were withheld. These were the payments made to Britain by Irish farmers through the Irish government for the land purchased by these farmers from the landlords under the various land acts since the time of Gladstone. And the Public Safety Act was suspended. For some supporters of the Cosgrave government, an ominous note, as the gates of Arbor Hill were opened and the political prisoners released. An excited Maud Gone welcomes these prisoners in College Green. But Ireland has stood together in this. The Irish, the IRA, stood firm. And they have defeated Cosgrave and the coercion. At that same meeting, which was attended by over 30,000 people, Padre O'Donnell declared that he was glad the murder government was out of power, but these men must be put finally out of public life. They must never be allowed to come onto a public platform. Meetings now were held in all parts of the country to welcome the released prisoners, and with the change of government, two developments are noticeable. Among Republicans, there's a sense of liberation, a feeling that with a new and sympathetic government, it might be possible to settle old scores, and before long the slogan of no free speech for traitors is frequently heard. I was half murdered outside chapel gates while the priest flung the congregation at me, but this was part of the turbulence at the time. After all, you've got to remember that as far as we were concerned, he were a crowd of men who had just only shortly before m murdered 
uh, crowds of, 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 of in, our, in our opinion, more of the powers in prison. And if you saw them on a platform, you certainly weren't going to be very polite to them. And uh, there was that, and they, we, it was Christian a give and take, like a like a football match. We got as much hectic as they got. Undoubtedly, the uh, the uh, defeat of the Commonwealth government and its supporters was hailed by all Republican, Democrats, and Progressives. And there was the view by a large number that they had behaved in a very undemocratic fashion during the days that they had power and there should be a limitation on the freedoms that they should be allowed. And it was regarded generally as an incitement, the kind of meetings and demonstrations they were holding. The voices there of Padre O'Donnell and Sean Nolan, both prominent in the left-wing politics of the time. As far as the Commonwealth people were concerned, there was a growing sense of unease as meetings were heckled, threats were issued, and occasional beatings up took place. And as far as they were concerned, a hostile government was forcing the police to stand idly by. Meetings were broken up and a good deal of interference with speakers. In fact, a lot of our committee meetings were interfered with where we held them in houses. And the position was that organisers of those meetings and members of the committees were interfered with leaving the meetings and we found it very difficult difficult at the time to carry on our programme of work. Paddy Edward Nolan, common and ale supporter in County Carlow. The difficulty was there that and uh, the found it very difficult at meetings where guards did their best and were not to blame but could not effectively deal with the the interrupters and people who interfered. How did Ernest Blythe, just out of office, see the relationship between the government and the IRA and those on the left? There was uh, extreme tolerance on the part of many ministers. They had been associated with these people. They had, as it were, fought together and uh, they they hadn't very much sympathy with us, so I think there was something approaching collusion. What was now happening was indeed confirming the worst fears of Cosgrave supporters, and it was this possibility and a generalised fear of what would happen if Fianna Fáil won the election, which had led some high-ranking army and police officers, including General Ona Duffy, Chief of Police for nine years under Cosgrave, to discuss the possibility of a coup d'etat before that election. Colonel David Nelligan was head of the special branch at that time. I knew there was something in the wind, you see, because these guys were coming up to the mess every second night. And I used to vamoose, clear out, because I knew there was something in the wind and they wouldn't trust in me. So this particular night I was there having a drink, my usual bland matter, with a Duffy and a couple of more old stalwarts. So these guys all came in in uniform, and I finished my drink and I said, I'm going to be here going home. I was living in the castle. So Duffy said to me, Duffy says, don't stir. There's something going on here we want to hear, we want you to hear. So this man took out a proclamation, which was printed above in the ordnance survey, the part where one of these was working. And the, the, the proclamation was a pronunciamento. <laughs> banana, banana Republic stayed, taking over the whole shooting match from Cosgrave, who was at the end of his tether at this stage. So the man read out the proclamation, he said he had 99% of the army behind him. So Duffy said to me, well, Dave, he said, you've heard everything that's going on now. What do you think of it now? What do you think of this? Well, he says, I think it was the maddest scheme that was ever heard of in the world. And Rory O'Connor and his palace, they started that in 1922, and we fought a civil war on the head of it. 
Now he wants to start another civil war. And if this thing fails today, you'll find yourself up against a firing squad. And there'll be nothing at all to do with it, and they'll be dead against it. So anyway, the meeting broke up, and I, I thought that Duffy might go on with the thing behind my back. Then they sent, I went to see Seamus Hogan, who was a professor in Cork, and they examined me after. So Seamus and Hogan, Hogan and I went up to Duffy, up in the park, and Seamus Hogan lambasted Duffy with ancient and modern parallels for armies taking over, and he wiped the floor with him. Duffy said it had nothing to do with it. A few months after this, a few weeks after this, Cosgrave sent for me, he was the president, and he said to me, listen, Dave, is there unrest in the army? No, sir, says I. I didn't want to give the show end those poor devils, because they'd be all cashiered. So he said to me, if there was unrest in the army, would you be in favour of, of these fellows? I would not, sir, says I, fight against it necessarily. I'm damn glad he is saying that net again, he says, because that would be the worst thing that would happen. You can make your mind easy, sir, says that there'll be no, there'll be no, there'll be no mutiny in the army. Nor, as things turned out, was there. The army and police force was to prove loyal to the new government. The new state had come of age. But if some members of the National Army were worrying about freedom of speech and the safety of the state, others, ex-members of that army, some of the 40,000 men who had been demobilised in the 1920s and Cosgrave supporters almost to a man, these others feared for their jobs, their pensions and maybe even their safety under de Valera. In January of 1932, some of these ex-servicemen had formed the Army Comrades Association. But it was not until March of that year that reports of the activities of the Army Comrades began to appear in the newspapers. In the Irish Independent from March the 18th, 1932, hidden away among the small ads and reports of the Kennel Show, on page 6, was a short report of an apparently innocuous meeting. Government and ex-servicemen. The report pointed out that the Army Comrades Association held a national convention in Wynn's Hotel Dublin, Colonel T.F. O'Higgins presiding. It continued... Having discussed the position of ex-servicemen in the Free State, the Army Comrades Association unanimously passed a resolution protesting against the action of the government in withdrawing the preference which existed for ex-army men for employment as temporary officials and workers in the various services, and calling on all members of Doyle Aaron to have the preference re-established. The Irish Independent Report quotes the resolution passed at the meeting. We feel that we are not asking for anything unreasonable. As in all countries, there is a very definite preference in employment extended to all ex-soldiers who serve their state in time of danger. The army comrades were not to remain long in obscurity. With ex-servicemen increasingly worried about jobs and pensions, it grew rapidly in numbers, and in addition, there was the increasing threat to freedom of speech, as exemplified by Morris Toomey, Chief of Staff of the IRA, in June 1932. In a free country... Majority rule might be accepted as a basis for social regeneration, but while the country is unfree, no such rule must be allowed to obstruct the attainment of freedom. It was against this background of unrest and uncertainty that in August 1932, the Army Comrades opened its membership, beyond ex-servicemen, to all who believed in free speech, and gave themselves a new leader, Dr. T.F. O'Higgins. The Army Comrades also announced the setting up of a volunteer force made up of those who felt the need for the existence of a powerful, steadying, moderate body of opinion in the country. Members flocked to join the new Army Comrades Association. Meetings were held in all parts of the country. The new leader, Dr O'Higgins, rises to address a recruiting meeting in Tullamore. (laughs) 
There is no compulsion to join the Army Comrades Association. It is a benevolent organization started to make such provision as we can for the ex-army men. It is an organization to support law and order, to combat communism, to ensure the right of fair play and free speech for people expressing their opinion, no matter what party they belong to. This association is against hooliganism, armed or unarmed. Those who agree with the principles of the association will respond. And so the business of recruiting new members went on. But by now, there was more than just the question of free speech to worry the supporters of Cosgrave, and especially those in the farming community. On July the 1st, the Free State Government withheld £1.5 million due to the British Government for the half-yearly payment of the land annuities. This was just as Mr de Valera had promised before the election, but the British Government regarded this act as a breach of the treaty, and immediately slapped heavy duties on Irish exports to Britain. Ten days later, the Free State retaliated. The economic war had begun, and within months, Irish farmers, unable to sell their cattle, felt themselves faced with economic ruin. A new ingredient had been added to an already volatile political situation. Now, angry farmers and fears for freedom of speech. A meeting at Callum in 1932 is typical of many and reflects the new mood. would always be a, a, a few fights during those meetings because uh, there would always be some Republicans there who would resent something that went on. Thank you all for coming along today. Without detaining you, I'll introduce our first speaker. He's well known to all supporters of Commonwealth. Professor Michael Tierney. Up the Valera! I'd like to talk here today about the vital question of land annuities. And I want to know whether you people are going to let your children starve for the sake of five million pounds. And starve they will, up to the hilt, if things go on as they are going. The coming winter will be a hard one on the poor people if this war does not come to an end. The people should voice their feelings and say they don't want this unnecessary war. It's only by your determination and the vote of your deputies that you can do anything in the matter. We have been told that we're only helping the English. You are helping them. We don't want the agents of England here. himself says that England is 60 times stronger and wealthier than this country. We are going into a gamble with a 60 to 1 chance against us. It looks as if the people in this country have made up their minds that they don't want politicians or statesmen. They want to make out that de Valera is a wizard. Oh, that de Valera! The papers are full of talks between Mr. Sean T. O'Kenny and Mr. Thomas in Ottawa. I want to remind that Republican fellow in the crowd that Mr. O'Kelly agreed to sending a resolution of loyalty to His Majesty King George V. You're a liar! 
I'm not making this statement of my own accord. It was in the Irish press. Oh, oh, executed were executed by the government of the country elected by the people. What about the murder of Kevin O'Higgins? Who was coming from mass on a Sunday morning? There are men today in the Fianna Fáil government who know very well by whom and why Kevin O'Higgins was shot. And so, as the political turbulence increased towards the end of 1932, so did the role of the army comrades grow in importance. With the growth of the ACA, the rowdy and the thug will soon disappear, and with them will go our Christian communist politicians and their intimidatory methods, upon which apparently, in this desperate national crisis of its own making, Fianna Foyle now almost entirely relies for a continuance of its ill-starred regime in this land. The view of the Common and Nail newspaper. It was against this background that Mr. de Valera called a sudden general election for January 1933. He didn't have to do this. He had a workable majority in Dáil Éireann. But he wanted now, he said, a clear mandate to press ahead with his policies. And, in addition, there had been talk of a new political party opposed to Fianna Fáil and made up of Common and Ale, the Centre Party and some independents being formed. It was partly to forestall this that the election also had been called. It was a short and bitter campaign. Last November, in the dawn, I said that it was our intention to give a substantial permanent reduction in the annuities which the farmers were paying. I knew we were going to unite the Irish people and bring together the people who were marching together in the past but I didn't think we'd reunite them so quickly as to get Mr. Cosgrave at last to see that the Irish tenant farmer couldn't afford to pay these annuities and send them over to England so easily as, as he was in the past. <laughs> you have been already reminded that we said that one of our first acts would be to get rid of the oath of allegiance. We wanted to get rid of that oath because it was a fruitful source of division and dissension in this country. The moment we got into office, we put that oath through the doors. It was held up by the Senate, but the moment this election is over and we are returned, it will be sent back to the Senate, and whether they like it or not, then it becomes law over their head. Fianna Fáil got into office last year by promises which they must themselves know were incapable of fulfilment. Now, after ten months, they have suddenly sprung a general election to the people, pretending that they have performed all that they undertook. If, in fact, that were true, or if even a hundredth part of it were true, there need be no election at all, because no good citizen could oppose a government that had done so much in the short space of time as ten months has been of all this pain. We are engaged in what has been called a war with the British people. That war was started by the muddling bravado of the Fianna Fáil government. Working people are aware that more skill, more ability, more courage, more character are necessary 
for the conclusion of a fair agreement in the conference chamber than for the making of a wild speech at a street corner. The chief protagonists there, Eamon de Valera and W.T. Cosgrave. This time there was no doubt about the result. A clear mandate and an overall majority for Mr. de Valera. The programme of Fianna Fáil has now been definitely adopted as the national policy of the Irish people. That programme aims at restoring the unity of Ireland and securing its independence, at placing as many families as possible upon the land, at building up our industries so that the food we eat, the clothes we wear, the houses we live in, the articles in common daily use in the lives of our people may all, as far as is reasonably possible, be produced by Irish labour from Irish materials. Ireland united, Ireland free, Ireland self-supporting and self-reliant, Ireland speaking her own tongue and through it giving to the world our ancient treasures of Christian Gaelic culture. These are the ideals to which enthusiastic young Ireland is now devoting energy. One of the first acts of Mr de Valera after his victory was to sack the Chief of Police, General Owen O'Duffy. This act was to cause a public outcry. O'Duffy was a well-known public figure. He was the man who had founded the Garda Síochána. He was president of the National Athletic and Cycling Association. He was the organiser of the Eucharistic Congress. And immediately he became, for the common and ailed people at least, a public martyr. Mr de Valera refused to be moved. He wanted, he said, as chief of police, a man in whom he could have full confidence, and a man who had not been chief of police for ten years under the Cosgrave administration. And so O'Duffy went to be replaced by Colonel Broy. The army comrades too were in the news. During the election campaign, the members of the army comrades had acted as stewards at common nail and centre party meetings and had been involved in frequent clashes with IRA and Fianna Fáil supporters. Now, shortly after the election, the army comrades decided to adopt a new uniform for its members, to adopt the blue shirt. Now, Ireland, like the continental countries, was to have its shirted movement. Ernest Blythe was at the Army Comrades meeting when the idea of the shirt was raised, and he gives his version of what happened. Oh, the reason to, for adopting the blue shirts was a very simple one. At a meeting, I think, somewhere in County Meath, two groups of blue shirts were present to maintain order, as it were, and secure free speech. They didn't recognise one another, and they came into collision. And the result was that you had blue sh- uh, army comrades, as we called them at the time. We had one group beating the other. So it was decided after that that they must wear some form of uniform uh, so that they could distinguish a one group of could from a particular district, could distinguish a group from another. And a vote was taken at a meeting at which I was present. Various colours were proposed. I remember Tom O'Higgins preferred a grey shirt, uh, but anyhow the blue shirt was uh, the blue was the colour uh, ultimately chosen. And so, in April of 1933, the blue shirt made its appearance. 
St. Patrick's blue, it was said, with the cross of St. Patrick as the emblem to be worn on the shirt. Meanwhile, the political situation was worsening. The IRA, while hostile to the blue shirts, was now growing impatient with de Valera, and members of the IRA were increasingly coming into conflict with the police. The farmers, too, were beginning to feel the full brunt of the economic war, and they also began to grow in their militancy. And in all of this, the importance of the blue shirts began to grow. But first, who were these blue shirts? Well, there were the sons of Comanagale supporters and Comanagale members of committees and members of the county council and all that. They were the sons of those people who really joined the blue shirts. There was a small portion then to join that probably were members of other political organisations, but very small in numbers, I think. The pattern was unchanged as far as in numbers of support to the common Gael. But they were the really the sons, the younger generation of the common Gael members. Paddy Edward Nolan of Carlow. Oh, tell me, my lad, said the old Fenian chief, the goal that your boys have in view. And what brings you forth from all over the land in your colours so stately and blue? The goal that we strive for, my worthy old friend, is the goal for which brave men and strong have given their lives, and that goal will be won when the blue shirts come marching along. The leading army comrades, now in their blue shirts, felt at this stage that their movement needed a full-time leader. They began to look around for a man of national stature, when, in the words of Dr. O'Higgins, Providence and President de Valera made General O'Duffy available. Proudly the blue flag above us is waving Out with all slavish and cowardly fears See where our leader strides boldly before us Loyal to all in the trust that he bears Steadfast and calm and brave he will all Ireland save Rush to his banner all good men and through now we resign the call, there will be room for all who stand by our country, O Duffy Abu. And so, on July the 20th, 1933, General Owen O'Duffy became leader of the Blue Shirts, O'Duffy who had built up the police. He inherited, when he, when he joined the guards as commissioner, he inherited a lawless, undisciplined mob who wouldn't obey anybody. And he fired out the whole bloody lot of them and started up to recruit a new force. And he made a wonderful job of it, and they were a damn good force. And he did that off his own bat. And then when the army mutiny, he was brought out of the guards and made chief of staff of the army, and he cleaned up that situation as well in the army in 1924. So Duffy, Duffy did a lot of good work. A man then of great competence, great energy, and capable of inspiring fierce loyalty in the men he led. The chief of the force is not sleeping tonight. He's awake. A phone's at his side and a map's on the wall. And his look is intense as he answers a call. The general's awake, yes, awake. So I stand and I think, then I walk up and down on my beat. And the night passes on and the little stars peep. Yet the general works on in the silences deep, alert and awake, wide awake. But Aduffy's arrival meant more than a change of leader. It meant a change of name and a change of organisation. Gone now was the benevolent organisation of ex-servicemen. In its place, the National Guard, a fully-fledged political movement, 
but a political movement with a difference. Its members wore blue shirts. It was attached to, to no political party, but it was involved in politics, and it did have a political programme. More than that, it was a programme which introduced ideas new to Irish politics, ideas on the corporate state, ideas popular with some fascist leaders, and ideas which had received the blessings of Pius XI in Quadragesimo Anno. Indeed, the corporate state was seen as the Catholic Church's answer to the excesses of capitalism and communism. It advocated the vocational reorganisation of society, advocated that parliaments would be elected not by constituencies but by vocational groups, that each vocational group, the employers and the employees, would look after their own affairs with strikes and lockouts prohibited. The essential idea of the corporate state was to seek harmony between the various social and political groups at work in society. Professor Michael Tierney was one of those who advocated these ideas in Ireland. I suppose it was as much from D.K. Chesterton and his sort of writings that uh, I, I became interested in that idea of uh, some real or economic uh, social reorganisation. And uh, Mussolini's corporate state was just a form of that that uh, seemed to me to give a headline and a guideline for something that we could do in Ireland. I felt very much that after the collapse of 1932 and the defeat of the pro-treaty party, there was great danger that the country would just uh, stagger along rather headlessly because they had no confidence at all in the economic or social views of the Fianna and Fáil party as they were then. Ernest Blythe too was part of this new development. They were interested very much in the talk that was going on at that time about the corporate state. Their ideas were vague but they felt it had the blessing of the church and of the that it was advocated by the Pope and they felt that we they should we should do anything that could be do, done along the lines that inspired the corporate state did these ideas influence the ordinary blue shirt colonel austin brennan i thought general duffy was a good leader but i was going to work within the organization with my own ideas. I know nothing about corporate state or any of those other things as far as I was concerned. The blue shirts had one great uh, task and that was to help to establish the freedom of speech. And Duffy himself began to introduce ideas new to Irish politics. There are good reasons for the worldwide tendency at present apparent to supersede, modify or sidestep the old parliamentary system. The days of its usefulness are gone. Parliaments gabble too much. Ideas foreign to Ireland perhaps, but not so foreign to some of Europe's fascists or to those of Sir Oswald Mosley in England. We have no real democracy at the present time. Because again and again since the war, the country has voted for great changes and for decisive action. Yet again and again, their will has been thwarted by obstruction in the talking shop at Westminster. 
Meanwhile, however, Qaddafi pressed ahead, organizing branches, appointing officers, preparing to demonstrate Blue Shirt's strength in a great parade to Leinster House. The government was worried. President de Valera. Peace has reigned in Ireland for the last 18 months. Our friends may feel assured that it will not be disturbed. It is true that a semi-military body was formed here over a year ago and that under new leadership it has recently avowed that one of its aims is the overthrow of representative government. The Irish people fought for centuries to regain control of their own affairs. They have not the least intention of surrendering that control now to any dictator or to any militarist group whatever. The aims and methods of the so-called National Guard are in fact so hateful to the vast majority of the people that only the protection of the police would make it safe to wear the uniform of that body in the streets. No government worthy of its trust would allow its citizens to be plunged into anarchy in order to gratify the ambitions of a few would-be dictators. The National Guard will have to choose between disappearance or conversion into a peaceful non-military organization. General O'Duffy rejected these charges. The National Guard is strongly opposed to anything flavouring of a dictatorship or a coup d'etat. The National Guard of Ireland is a civil organization. Its members are unarmed. The principal objects of the organization are to promote the reunion of Ireland, to oppose communism and kindred societies, to uphold Christian principles, to promote and maintain social order, to lead the Irish youth in a movement of constructive national action, to set up machinery for the prevention of strikes and lockouts by harmoniously composing industrial differences, to reduce unemployment by the provision of useful and economic public work, to safeguard agricultural interests by the creation of representative statutory organisations of farmers, and to promote the physical fitness of our people by the organisation of athletic clubs in every parish in the country. General O'Duffy. In spite of government warnings, O'Duffy went ahead with plans for his proposed parade to Leinster Lawn, a parade which would bring blue shirts from all parts of the country. The government insisted that the parade was sinister, that O'Duffy was planning a coup d'etat, and hours before the parade was to be held, it was banned by the government. O'Duffy was forced to call it off, but a week later he went ahead and held other parades, and after this the government banned the National Guard. Was this the end of O'Duffy's political career? August 1933. In fact, what happened was quite the opposite. Instead of doing what the government had intended and driving him out of politics, O'Duffy now found himself surrounded by common and nail and centre party politicians seeking to form a new political party and seeking a new political leader. In September, they formed Fine Gael and O'Duffy became its first leader. The Blue Shirts now became part of Fine Gael and became known as the League of Youth. Now, instead of being a political outcast, O'Duffy was head of a major political party and a shirted political movement. The initiative now lay with the Blue Shirts. The government tried by various means to imprison O'Duffy, to ban the organisation, to close its offices, to seize its newspaper, and on every occasion it failed. And meanwhile, the situation in the country reached crisis point. Farmers refused to pay their rates and annuities. 
the government seized their goods and livestock and auctioned them off. These auctions were boycotted, and where that failed, the blue shirts took a lead in breaking them up. And by now, the blue shirt had had its first martyrs, and seemed to be going from strength to strength. It was now, in February 1934, that the government introduced the Wearing of Uniforms Bill to make the wearing of the blue shirt illegal. The bill was introduced in the Doyle by the Minister for Justice, Patrick Rutledge. The purpose of the bill is clearly to prevent the wearing of uniforms. The justification that I propose to put before the House for the passage of this measure is that the wearing of uniforms in this country, as in other European countries, has resulted in the creation of disorders, and the creation of those disorders has imposed on the authorities a strain that the authorities cannot adequately deal with. The uniform, and indeed the objects of the organisation which dons the uniform, seem to have been copied without practically a comma being changed from similar organisations in continental countries. Those continental countries have had to deal with that situation. They had had to deal with what has been described as militarisation in politics. You have had that in Switzerland and in the Netherlands. Some historians have claimed... Mr MacDermott of Fine Gael takes up the debate after the resumption of the Doyle on March 13, 1934. How deep does this objection of the government to militarism in politics go? I would like to think that it did go deep, but to my mind the suggestion that it is the blue shirts who have introduced a note of militarism into Irish politics is too ridiculous to be entertained for a moment. The government encouraged that dangerous form of militarism by allowing parades in military formation. Did any of us hear a whisper of an objection from government benches to parades in military formation until the appearance on the scene of the blue shirts? Why, even now it is considered nothing at all out of the way for the Minister for Justice to attend a funeral and have volleys fired over the grave, not by the forces of the state, but by some private citizens. I have not heard an objection raised by the Labour representatives either to the existence of the IRA or the activities of the IRA. I wonder if the government, who are talking so much about the dangers of militarism, have any idea of preventing military parades in the future on the occasion of various anniversaries by their own friends. We should certainly not be tempted even for a moment to create a state of things in this country dangerous to public order and in contradiction to the principles of liberty and democracy, simply because we might derive party advantage therefrom. Now, I wish I could get ministers to believe in the sincerity of that statement. The Uniforms Bill was passed by the Doyle, but on March 21st it was defeated by the Senate. It now could not become law for 18 months. Once again, the blue shirts had survived. O'Duffy now began to prepare for his first great electoral test, the local elections in June. He campaigned the length and breadth of the country. Everywhere he was met by huge crowds, mass meetings, busloads of blue shirts, blue shirts on horseback, blue blouses, blue shirt children. But when the results were in, it was clear that O'Duffy was no greater a vote-getter than had been W.T. Cosgrave. Fine Gael were still behind Fianna Foyle. And all the while the economic situation worsened, and with this blue shirt involvement in illegal acts increased. Heckling at meetings was on the up, fights, scuffles, and the blue shirts now had another martyr, Michael Lynch, shot in Marsh's Yard, Cork in August. Stern is the fight that we now do engage in both justice and truth will our motto where be. Aaron, now helpless, nigh bankrupt and broken, we must rise up to be prosperous and free. 
Up with St. Patrick's flag, ne'er let our courage lag. Remember O'Reilly and Lynch, men in blue. Think of the lives they gave for our dear land to save, for God and for Ireland, O'Duffy Abu. It was against this background that the Blue Shirt Congress was held in August 1934. It was an emotional affair, but it brought into the open the growing differences between those within the movement who felt that a desperate situation called for desperate remedies and those who felt that the law must be obeyed at all costs. A motion was proposed urging farmers not to pay their rates and annuities, in other words, to break the law. Colonel Austin Brennan, who opposed this, made his views known to Ed Cronin, the deputy director of the movement. I called Ned Cronin and I told him, you cannot put up this resolution because you cannot enforce it. The motion was passed, but when it came to the Finnegade executive, it brought into the open the dissatisfaction with a Duffy which had been simmering for some time dissatisfaction with his verbal extravagance, with his incipient fascism, with his admiration for Mussolini and Hitler, with his advocacy of illegal methods. The executive sought to impose restrictions on Duffy. He refused and he resigned. That, September 1934, was the effective end of the Blue Shirt movement. There was, of course, a split. One small section followed Duffy and went with him to Spain to fight for Franco. The others, their, their jobs done, free speech protected, put their shirts away. And so, after 1934, the Blue Shirts, O'Duffy's men, shuffled off the stage of Irish history. And the old Fenian chief, as the tears filled his eyes, oh, so proudly he took me by the hand. And he said, oh, my lad, I bless you today, and bless everyone in your band. I know of the fame of your leader so bold, so noble and fearless and strong. Oh, Duffy will lead you to victory, my friends, when the blue shirts come marching along.